Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Did you know that most statistics for commercial and social research are tested for accuracy at a 95% confidence level? As specialists in the field, we do test between 90 and 99% confidence levels. This is not to be confused with our name. Plus 94 is a celebration of the miracle post-94 in South Africa. We can still test the accuracy of your data at 94%. It is in our name to give you the confidence you need. Plus 94 Research. The science of decision making. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us here at 101.9 Fire FM. My name is Nimrod Ubambela. I am delighted to, to share this space and time with you as we continue to shine spotlight on some of the pertinent current affairs through the lenses of our esteemed guest. I'm sure you'd agree with me when I say 2024 is a watershed year for many reasons, and key for me is the geopolitical configuration or reconfiguration, if you like. We, As you know, we have uh, U.S. elections, we've got Russian Federation elections, Indonesia, India with the biggest uh, democracy on Earth, we've got Pakistani, we've got South Korea, Mexico, and European Union, amongst others. Pretty much all countries, um, uh, all countries, political parties um, have either unveiled or about to unveil their manifestos. When you look at globally, more voters than ever in the history will head to polls as at least 64 countries representing a combined population of about 49% of the people in the world. These countries are meant to hold national elections, of which the results for many will prove consequential for many years to come. In South Africa, this is not an exception. We've had our uh, elections uh, since 1994. Uh, as we enter in, as we enter 2024, on the 29th of May, based on what you've heard from the president, we will obviously be, you know, this will be highly contested political well, elections, if you like. For we have about close to 200 political parties that are contest that will be contesting for the elections. And I'm sure you agree with me, this will probably be the most highly contested um, political and um, elections um, since the dawn of democracy. As we proceed, I want to thank the team behind this show, Craig Guthrie, who is on the controller, and but last, last but not least, Harit Seleka, who is the producer of the show. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your contribution in navigating the show. Too much to the delight of the listener. Moving along, uh, if you missed any of our previous episode, episodes, not to, not to worry. Simply go to our website, uh, which is www.hifm.com. Download uh, or look for Beyond Governance. Download any of the podcasts and share with us your views. Just a quick reflection. I had a very interesting conversation with Sandile Swana, who is a political analyst and governance expert uh, last, um, in a Russian encounter. And our conversation centered around the State of the Nations address of the, the, the sixth administration. There are a lot of issues that he put to us which are quite fascinating and, and left us slightly more slightly more knowledgeable, given the fresh insights that he brought to us. As a norm, I urge you to wait in our conversation um, on this glorious morning, for we have similar kind of uh, inputs from yet another fascinating political analyst. As indicated earlier, we will we will be you know debunking political parties' manifestos as the country is gearing to gearing for the national and provincial elections on the on the 29th of May. I think it is important for us to reflect on actual meaning of these manifestos as, as and most importantly how this 
these parties obviously have performed. And of course, uh, some parties are new. There's not much we can test their manifestos, but on the basis of the leadership that they put forward, we are likely to make some kind of, of determination. The bulk, obviously, we know that before the ANC, IFP, EFDA and so on and so forth. Those uh, obviously have been in the in, in the midst for some time. In making sense of this political pathway, I am joined by Solid Solomon, who is a lecturer um, at political studies at the uh, University of South Africa. Uh, in our conversation, we are putting a spotlight on the political manifestos. Without any waste of time, let me welcome Summit to Beyond Governance. Good morning, man, and welcome. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm quite excited to hear your thoughts on a very complex and multi-layered, um, you know, phenomenon of, of politics in, the, in this country. Perhaps maybe setting the scene, uh, you know, we know that back in 2019, we we probably we approximately about 14 million unregistered young people in, in the country, and this in 2024, this the figure is slightly the same, if not more, even though the uh, IEC declared that they, there's more people coming through um, and, and who, have, who are eligible to vote. From where you're sitting, what accounts for voter apathy and why political parties fail, fail to attract or seem to fail to attract voters? I think it's quite fascinating that that's the starting point of our discussion today. I think that voter apathy isn't something that started just today. I think post-94, a lot of people had expectations in terms of how they wanted the state to perform. While we had political freedoms, there were a lot of socioeconomic needs that were not made. Over the years, you've had free access to education, you've had the RDP program starting with the building of houses, you have had more access to electricity, but similarly the quality of the education and healthcare has been questionable. You have high levels of youth unemployment like I think this morning they mentioned that the youth unemployment rate is 59% which is quite high if you look at the statistics and figures and I mean as a country we have like quite a young demographic of people so I think that over the years these people essentially the youth haven't really been able to stand up for themselves and address it because most of them were not old enough to to vote. And I think now as we move towards the 2024 elections, we see more registered young people often referring to 2024 being their 1994, because I actually think that they want the country to change tack, to change direction, and they're actually ready to see um, sustainable changes take place. Thank you very much for that uh, observation. Uh, while we're getting ourselves into more and more uh, interesting insight from your end, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Did you know that where markets are concerned, it's not easy to detect the difference between objective and subjective reality or between reality and fantasy. The business's view of the consumer has serious bottom-line implications. At Plus94 Research, we help businesses cut through the uncertainty by gathering and processing real consumer intelligence through advanced scientific research methodologies. Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governments. My name is Nimrod Ben. I am joined by Sanat Solomon, who is a lecturer at the uh, University of South Africa. Um, you know, we are probing, if you like, the political manifestos that are 
laid to bed to ask for us to consider as we gear ourselves towards the, the polls on the 29th of, of May this year. Um, the question I posed to um, Sanet in Ile was the, um, the apathy um, that we've seen that runs into millions. And, and she obviously gave us a view uh, which obviously looks at um, uh, issues of disgruntlement, particularly from the youth. Um, uh, youth, obviously, uh, majority of youth are quite unemployed, whether they uh, whether they are degrees or not. Um, but this is the reality that most um, youth are actually ex- experiencing. But as we proceed um, on that apathy note, um, we we know that a lot of people are grieved for reason that you have mentioned. And any political party that would have captured the hearts and minds of those um, unregistered and yet eligible voters would have easily unseat current ruling party. Any of you, and obviously I suppose part of the solution or so-called solution comes from your so-called the moon pack. Is this an acknowledgement that none of these parties have what it takes to unseat the ruling party? To be honest with you, when looking at some of the polls that have been done, the outcomes are quite fascinating. Um, you have different political parties doing polls internally, but you also have other companies doing polls. And one of the things that have come through is that while the ANC will have a reduced vote, none of the other political parties will have enough to become a majority party on their own, which is quite fascinating. And I think that's why you see a move towards these pacts. And what's fascinating about the Moon Pact in itself is that combined with the DA and the smaller parties, they will only have 35% of the vote, which is not big enough to govern a country. Um, additionally, there is a lot of talks, and I think um, with regards to the Ipsos polls that found that the EFF might become the official um, opposition party in terms of the country. So I think that would also be a fascinating outcome. I don't think um, that for this election, we will see uh, another party coming forward at being a majority winner in terms of the election. And I don't think that they have um, invoked enough trust and or provided alternative measures in which the community and the country as a whole could feel that they could actually govern the country, especially if you look at scope. None of them have governed at such a large scope. So I don't think that they're quite ready yet, but I do see that we are moving towards that where we will have like more packs where we will have more coalitions. But what people are also fearing is that these packs and these coalitions are actually quite unstable. Um, in one of the research proposals that or research reports that came out last year, which was commissioned by the IEC and the HSRC, a lot of people indicated that they would be very unsatisfied and actually quite unhappy if we were to find ourselves in more coalitions, given the instability. So I think that also is something that these political parties need to take into consideration when they are um, like going and preparing for the election so that they can try to give garner more support as individual parties before going into these coalitions. And I also think like maybe building coalitions with more like-minded parties would also increase the stability of these parties. I think you're quite um, um, hands-on 
on the instability that we are likely to see. I mean, the, if, if the local government election is anything to go by, it is quite clear that at the national level, um, which is undesirable, if you like, because the, we cannot afford any instability for it. That will impact negatively on the policy uh, position of government, irrespective of who is in power. You've raised a very pertinent point about the EFF being likely to be a, an opposition party. Um, but what does it mean if do any of you, do you think they have a more sufficient, um, you know, masses to become an alternative or to become an opposition party? In what way would they have outsmarted the moon pack? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, yeah. <laughs> um, I love your questions. I love your questions. Um, so what is quite fascinating about the EFF is that their focus has largely been on the youth and they focus on younger people and so on. And I think that is one of the key points. You would also note that another political party that also focuses on the youth is a party um, called Rise and Zanzi. So I think they will be uh, ideally competing for the youth's vote. And I think um, one of the other things that has been happening with the other parties that form part of the Moon Pack isn't that they are not good parties. It isn't that they are not capable parties because I think some of them are managing some municipalities, some of them are in charge of certain provinces, etc. But the problem with them is that for some or other reason, they don't resonate with the youth, they don't resonate with younger people and some of them have been in existence for quite some time and they haven't really managed to like fill that gap left by the um, African National Congress and while you see less and less people voting for the ANC they haven't been able to get those people to join Um, an additional thing that I've noticed is that a lot of these parties also have internal um, internal power struggles if you wish some of them are losing key and important leaders which also means that they are losing out on those constituencies which means that you have more small and smaller splinter political parties forming and one of the things that is quite fascinating about the EFF is that um, since its inception until now it has been gradually growing it is the one party that has been consistently growing so I think like that is something that would be quite fascinating to study why the youth resonate so much with their message and why it is that people can relate and I think here again we go back to the struggles that the young people are facing in terms of inflation, in terms of inequality, in terms of spatial inequality where people have to take three, four taxis to get to work, in terms of like gender-based violence, etc. Challenges faced by the LGBT community and so on. So I think that that's um, like some of the things that like these younger leaders can speak to and I don't necessarily think that it is that the the larger and older parties can't it is that in some of these more established political parties you don't really see a lot of young voices you don't really see a lot of uh, opposing voices and so on but I think that we are in for a fascinating election I think that it would be fascinating to see if the EFF would become an official opposition I do think that the DA is campaigning quite hard and I think that it is trying to gather support in terms of this pact.
Interesting observation indeed. I mean, I, I do take your point in that um, most of the established political parties don't seem to have leverage on the youthness of the country. And some of the issues that you've raised, um, which EFF has been able to capitalize on, does give it a bit of a competitive edge. And and, and while we're there, I mean, there's a, there's a new party in the block um, called Action SA. They themselves have also put um, their manifesto forward. What would you say the position, I mean, of course, it is part of the so-called MUNPAT, as an alternative to the ruling party, has it gotten sufficient interest to lure uh, you and I to vote for them? I think that Action SA is a very interesting political party, if I may. <laughs> um, I, I think that they are a fascinating political party. Um, I think that they are, like, I think that they may have, like, support in, like, Gauteng predominantly. I wouldn't say they have such a big grasp in terms of other areas, like, definitely not in the Eastern Cape. I don't see it in the Free State. Definitely not in the Western Cape. And definitely not in KZN. Um, but I, I would say that another party that would be that is a newer party or not quite new but an interesting party to observe will be the patriotic alliance in terms of some of the work that they've done particularly last year and i think that they their support will continue to grow in um areas such as such as Gauteng. but i also think that you'll see a lot of support for them in the western cape i do think that um going forth the western cape will be a contested area in terms of the good party in terms of the Patriotic Alliance, in terms of the Al Jamal Party, and I think those may be uh, parties that the DA may be contesting for in the, that particular area. I think that while Herman Mashaba and his political party are doing fairly well, I do think that a lot of people have raised concerns about their messaging um, and how it could possibly be perceived as xenophobic in nature. So I think that they, that's something that they should just be careful about so that it doesn't just become a about foreign nationals and so on, but also about what you can do and not necessarily scapegoating. South Africa has a lot of shortcomings. There is a lot of unemployment. There are areas that are poorly governed. There are areas where people need a lot more assistance than in others. And I think that our focus as a country should be towards fixing that as opposed to saying that it is this way because of person X and Y. And I think that that's how the messaging has been geared in the past. So I'm hoping to see a shift away from that in future. Absolutely. Uh, on that note, let's do take uh, a break. We'll be back in a second to conjole this with a fascinating observation that you are putting to us. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Did you know that most statistics for commercial and social research are tested for accuracy at a 95% confidence level? As specialists in the field, we do test between 90 and 99% confidence levels. This is not to be confused with our name. Plus 94 is a celebration of the miracle post-94 in South Africa. We can still test the accuracy of your data at 94%. It is in our name to give you the confidence you need. Plus 94 Research. The Science of Decision-Making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. Nimrod Nibele here. I am joined by Sonet Solomon, who is a political analyst attached to the University of uh, South Africa as the lecturer in that, in that particular, in the political studies um, uh, faculty. Before we took that short break, we, you know, um, 
Senate give us her observation in respect to um, parties such as Action SA, Rule Particular Alliance, and here in the view, Action SA is a a, 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 you know, a force to contend with, particularly in Gauteng. However, she questions its um, presence in other, in other provinces, such as KZN and so on and so forth. And I do acknowledge that, uh, you know, a, a particular alliance has made inroads in Joburg and will certainly be a force to reckon with uh, in, the, in, in the Western Cape, where the DA is likely to, you know, experience its experience uh, at the contestation there. But it, would that be enough? Let's look at, um, you know, pe- you know, Patrick Alliance, a good party, Algema in the Western Cape, and based on what they're messaging, it, would that be good enough for DA to worry about? But it does look like a DA has done exceptional the world. Well, when it looks when it comes to clean uh, governments and municipalities under DA in the Western Cape, have proven to be uh, well governed, and that on its own is also a a positive point to to punt. Um, as part of the electioneering. I think it's it's quite fascinating that you mentioned that. Um, I I had a previous interview in which I mentioned this, and I think it's also important to just stress it. I do think that the DA has managed to govern certain areas very well. If we had to look at the Western Cape, if you look at your Bergfleet, Constantia, Seapoint, etc., those are very well governed. They are very secure. You have a lot of service delivery, etc. But if you look at areas such as your Kailicha, Langa, and so on, you see there is, and also Mitchell's Plain, you see there's a lesser police presence. You see that there is not necessarily the same amount of services rendered and to the same extent. If you go further into other areas in terms of the Western Cape, if you are on the Garden Route, for example, George very well managed, Sedgefield, Neisner, and so on, very well managed, and so on. But in the same province, if you were to go to, for example, Saldana, if you had to go to Feldruff and other areas, portions of Lang you find that there are areas and communities that are less better governed. Um, and for example, if like let's take Langaban. If you look internally in Langaban, the town is very beautiful. You have multi-million dollar or million rand properties, etc. Very beautiful town, etc. But if you move into the coloured and black communities, you find that a lot of them are under-resourced. You find there's a lot of poverty. You find that those communities are often hid behind white walls or fences where you can't actually see how impoverished people are. So I think in that sense, that's where the DA will be losing its votes. The DA is not going to get as much support in areas such as your Kayalicha, your Langa, um, your Mitchell's Plain, like uh, like things like such as Saldana, etc. I think that's where they will be losing votes towards the good party. They'll be losing votes towards the Patriotic Alliance. They'll be losing the votes towards the Aljama, etc. If you take that, Cape Town has a very large Muslim community. Um, for example, there are some areas in which the DA will be losing its support given its stance in terms of the Israel-Palestine issue, where the Aljama, the Good Party, and the Patriotic Alliance will then be picking up those votes. And I think to some extent, uh, the ANC might also get some of those votes because people are just not resonating with some of that. So I think that it manages um, its governance well. I think where it is in control, it does 
do very well. But I do think that there are a lot of shortcomings. And while these were not necessarily that big problems uh, in the past, I think that it is something to be concerned about. And I think it is something that will cost them and definitely result in a reduction of votes in this 2024 elections. Interesting observation indeed, which which obviously begins to um, question the Moonpack approach because um, if there was sufficient ground for the DA to go it alone, it would not, it would not uh, require um, a pact of other six uh, political parties. And it is obviously an acknowledgement that um, the current look and feel of the party is not good enough or substantial enough to warrant um, a, a, a growth. And for reasons that you've pointed out, um, particularly in, in uh, black and colored communities in the Eastern, in, in the Western Cape, uh, basic based on the service delivery issues, you, you obviously pointed to some shortcomings which the DA, despite the fact that is, is, is the better government in the Western Cape in relation to, you know, uh, governance issues uh, that we are pretty much aware of. And there are obviously pockets of 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 improvements, if you like, that they need to look at in areas such as Mitchell's Plain, Kayanicha, uh, Naisna, and Saldana. So those are obviously uh, in a, a great points that you put forward. But here's another controversial point that the DA, uh, and I want your view on it, um, the, the BE, as it stands, I mean, uh, the, the DA is very, is very clear on the BE that, um, you know, obviously it is, it is regressive in so many ways and it wants to, um, and I changed it. How does this particular policy, given historical context of its existence, uh, yes, we understand it has been used and abused in the current system, um, but, you know, what is the alternative from the DA side and the extent to which the proposed alternative resonates with black people from where you're sitting? This is a very fascinating, uh, like, point that you mentioned. One of the things that people don't know is that the introduction of black economic empowerment was supposed to create a black middle class given how marginalized and underrepresented black people were in a lot of sectors. Um, poverty in terms of the black and colored communities were relatively much higher than if you look at the Indian and white population, for example. And so this was supposed to garner change and so on. But what happened over time is instead of creating a black middle class, we saw broad-based economic empowerment basically resulting in the creation of what we call black diamonds or a small black elite. And this hasn't necessarily trickled down in terms of your other um, people. And so I don't think that like BEE will, for example, have or the removal of BEE will have a big impact in your uh, day-to-day functioning of the state. And I'd like to unpack if I I may. Um, I don't think that it will affect people because I think that a lot of these companies have one or two um, people of color as the like a black percentage of the ownership and so on. And these people enrich themselves and their companies grow and they make a lot of money, etc. But I think that it doesn't trickle down. I think something that does work for people of color. And here I would like to add um, your colored, black, etc. people. Um, 
would be the employment equity. I think that's something that black people, colored people, Indian people, and even some white people value the equity thing because it ensures that people get um, placed and that there is representation and integration in terms of different uh, workplaces and so on. So I don't think that the the removal of BEE would have such a big impact. Um, I've heard the DA talk a lot about meritocracy, uh, meritocracy uh, where people get appointed based on marriage and so on. And I think that is something that's quite exciting given how many number or the large number of graduates that we have. Um, I think if they coupled that with Cyril's suggestion to remove the minimum numbers of years experience you need to have for entry-level positions, I think that could work quite well. So I think for this instance, um, a DA idea plus an ANC idea would be something that would like um, result in more job creation. I think that it would result in more uh, opportunities for your younger people. And I think it's definitely something that either party should decide to implement should they be the governing party post the 2024 elections. Um, an interesting observation uh, on the, the inability of the BE to, to trickle down to ordinary folks, but how obviously, I mean, it, it's, it's, there are, there are perceptions and misconceptions about how it has been, um, uh, I mean, uh, pronounced because it, by its definition, it does mean, um, if a black folk, um, comes through, a white folk loses in the process and, and that, that kind of nomenclature in its own, um, has a serious limitation, which, has in the past, uh, you know, fostered a culture of compliance on the side of businesses, not so much about proper and understanding and appreciation of BE from a business imperative, not so much of a political uh, imperative, um, which one just need to, you know, um, uh, comply with maliciously, uh, as we've seen in the past. Uh, but you are saying to us, um, uh, if political parties, um, you know, the DA, NNC, ANC, uh, should they come back and they are likely to have a different approach to it, you know, to ensure that it, it does not limit the benefits to only so-called black elites or your, or your black government as you've granted out. I, I definitely think so. The, the, there's a lot of misconception about BEE. I think in principle, I think it is something that a lot of people welcomed. Again, because there were a lot of sectors in which you didn't have people of color and so on. But how it works out and how the percentages are actually calculated, it doesn't necessarily always result in the creation of a black middle class and or trickle down to people on the ground. And if we had to be very honest and very frank, it doesn't really benefit your everyday person. How many of these people who are regarded as stakeholders in these companies actually profit off those? Um, and I think that's something that we definitely need to unpack. I think it's something that we really need to research and actually look at the, the demographics in terms of how it's actually working. Because you'd also find that a company could be BE compliant, but how many of the same companies don't have the same person represented as part of their BE margin? So that's also something that we need to look at and that's where I'm coming up with this um, like thought that a lot of it results in the enrichment of a select few people because a lot of them could be owners in five or six companies that are BE compliant and these are getting business opportunities, they um, are able to participate in the business community very actively and so on but what does it actually mean for the person on the ground, what does it mean for the millions of South 
Africans who are unemployed, for the millions of South Africans who are dependent on your social grants, for the millions of South Africans who are uh, dependent on these um, social aids in terms of the 350 rands that they are getting. It's not trickling down. And I think that's why I'm saying that it does need to be revisited. But also don't scrape it in its entirety, but relook at it because while it looks good on paper, it's not it's not really making a difference that much in terms of your everyday lives. But I do think that it is benefiting some people. Absolutely. One thing that I agree with um, regards to um, the uh, employment um, criteria or selection criteria, I'm a strong believer in meritocracy. For we we know that the local government sphere and some of the SOEs are in a uh, in a in a mess purely because of um, the deployment of incompetent and ill-qualified uh, people to assume this particular position. So for me, uh, meritocracy as a template should be a non-negotiable when it comes to strategic uh, positions which people occupy and understand the issue of, of, of redoing the years of experience, but that should not replace uh, the, the competencies that is needed in driving the economy forward. Uh, but as we proceed, one issue that I want us to look at from the manifesto's point of view. Um, you know, I've looked at um, a number of points put forward by the EFF um, in so far as um, the, their strategy in insourcing uh, pretty much everything. Uh, they look, they, they they strongly believe in insourcing um, of of um, you know uh, goods and services, um, health, security, um, SOEs, and so on and so forth. I mean. On paper, it sounds brilliant. That is why I suppose majority of youth would be interested in that because it appears to create um, job opportunities. There are two issues on this. Um, the conception of the role of the state from the EFF side as an, a job creator or enabler. The second point I want to put to you is clarity on where will the money come from, given, given the fiscal uh, cliff that you're sitting in. Mm. Well, <laughs> like, this is quite fascinating, and I'm glad that you brought it up. One of the things that people don't seem to understand is that at some point, South Africa did have a lot of or a large manufacturing sector where we were able to produce much of the things that we used. And over time, we saw a move towards um, insourcing and getting things imported from other countries. And one of the things that I think we can learn from a country like China, for example, is that the Chinese economy wasn't always very strong and that China wasn't always doing financially very well. So one of the things that they did over time was they started manufacturing because if you have a large manufacturing sector, you are able to create uh, jobs at a large scale. And when you are able to get jobs at a large scale, you are able to create employment for larger groups of people, which means your poverty rate reduces, which means that the number of unemployed people that you have in the country reduces and over time you can move towards more um, skill-based employment where your your uh, focus is less on the manufacturing sector but also you can work and focus in in terms of other um, 
in terms of other sectors. Now, I think in terms of the the responsibility of the state, the state's responsibility is obviously to produce goods and services that the people need and to render certain services such as your security, your health care, etc. I don't necessarily think that the state is a creator of employment, but also we do know that it is only good for a state to intervene when there is large portions of your uh, population that are living in poverty when there's high levels of unemployment and so on. I think in instances like that, you do have a responsibility as the state to intervene. I'm not saying take over those sectors, not take over the responsibility of creating jobs, but you do have uh, a responsibility to intervene. So one of the ways in which South Africa can go above um or go about implementing the vision that the EFF has is, for example, by getting companies and other countries to invest in our manufacturing sector. For example, I love the idea that um, the Gauteng Premier mentioned in terms of getting country uh, companies such as your BMW, Ford, etc., to open up manufacturing plants in the country. When you have manufacturing plants in the country, cars get produced in the country, which means that you have more jobs, which means that you can then um, get more people employed, which would obviously have an impact on the poverty and so on. So it's not that it's not feasible. It is just that you need to have a thorough plan in terms of implementation and how you go about it. And also you need to create an environment that actually um, enables businesses to invest. And I think, yeah, we could learn from countries such as Tanzania, for example, when the current president took over, one of the things that she did was she created an environment that was conducive towards economic growth, that was conducive towards the private um, the private sector and so on. And as a result, you have more companies coming into the country saying, hey, listen, maybe we could make this in your country, etc. So there's ways around it. But the question is whether there's the political will to do so. And also just remembering that it's not the state's responsibility, but that the state may assist. And you don't necessarily have to do this by centralizing everything, but you can facilitate the correct processes in which the private com- uh, the private sector can come in and create jobs for your public. On that note, let's take a break. We'll be back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Did you know that where markets are concerned, It's not easy to detect the difference between objective and subjective reality or between reality and fantasy. The business's view of the consumer has serious bottom line implications. At Plus94 Research, we help businesses cut through the uncertainty by gathering and processing real consumer intelligence through advanced scientific research methodologies. Plus94 Research, the science of decision making. Welcome back. Uh, this is Beyond Governance. I'm joined by Sonat Solomon, who is a, le- a lecturer at the University of South Africa in the Political Studies uh, Faculty. We are probing the election manifestos of a number of political parties that have uh, unveiled their manifestos and those that are yet to unveil their manifestos. On the basis of those that have not yet unveiled the manifestos, we, we are obviously uh, extrapolating on the basis of what exists and, and, and what it actually means for the voters. Before we took that break, um, you know, Sonat gave us interesting input on, she was responding to a question that I put to her on 
the the insourcing model that the EFF is putting forward, wherein it is not as as clear and as simple and as linear as in you know you you create more bureaucracy because when you have state-owned entities, you are making an assumption that those who lead those entities will first and foremost be free and proper, and there is sufficient resources available. And and the biggest challenge that I put to her um, is the fact that we are in a fiscal cliff. And the, the liabilities created by the current government would obviously be inherited by anybody who comes through, irrespective of the ideology. So those are some of the things that, you know, um, it is important for, for an electorate to be knowledgeable about and to be asking pertinent questions when politicians are making hairy-fairy uh, promises, which realistically speaking are just simply not going to happen. And, and and that's something that, that, that this particular show seeks to really illuminate so that we are better informed, better educated, and the kind of decisions that we are making are just not based on, on emotions. Take your emotions outside, be practical in your assessment on issues around security, on issues such as health, on issues such as employment, and so on and so forth. Um, as we proceed... Um, so one question that I want us to, to, to really address um, um, has to do with, with the corruption. We all know that corruption has eroded, um, you know, state institutions, when police, uh, state-owned entities, government departments, and so on and so forth. Every single party's manifesto carries that issue of corruption, even, even including, the, including the ANC, of which um, its senior uh, members and cabinet ministers were somehow implicated in the Zona, uh, in the Zona Commission. So which of these parties, um, the DA obviously we know where it stands, which of these parties first and foremost present a resounding resolution on how to address um, not only just the symptoms of corruption, but the real cause of corruption? Because my assessment you, you, you can correct me here. We are often looking at the symptoms and not the real causes. And we are just putting bandages everywhere we go. And, and this thing festers from time to time. Your take on that? I think that there hasn't been a political party that hasn't been implicated. Or what I should rather say is that most of the political parties in the country has been um, implicated. You know, the ANC has been implicated in terms of the state capture. There have been those VBS allegations against the EFF. And more recently, we've also seen the DA being linked to um, possible corruption or alleged corruption, for example, um, earlier this uh, like uh, later last year, around September, there was this interesting article in the D um, in the Mail and Guardian where Etiquini was to investigate alleged DA corruption and a cover up. So I think when we look at the major uh, political parties, most of them have been. Um, like either implicated or they have been allegations of corruption. I think um, a lot of this has to do with the fact that corruption is so entrenched in terms of the different government departments in the country. I think that it is so um, entrenched in terms of the different SOEs that we have and so on. And I think in order for us to um, actually deal with corruption more decisively, I think there needs to be actual um, there needs to be actual consequences because one of the things that we have seen in South Africa is that the 
there are allegations of corruption, a lot of information is presented, but nothing actually happens. And as a result of the lack of action against those people and a lack of prosecution against those people, you see it playing out in society more and more and more. And as a result, you have more people encouraged to participate in this act. So I think dealing with it more decisively, I think um, more fines would have to be given to these people. But beyond that, I actually think that people need to be arrested for like the theft. Um, I think that there needs to be um, like further steps taken against those who engage in fruitless and wasteful expenditure in terms of municipalities and so on, because that actually has direct implications in terms of the day-to-day person, because that money is stolen, because that municipality is poorly governed and so on. You have services not being rendered. You have people living with sewage running down their streets, lack of water, also people not being able to drink the water coming from their taps because of the lack of servicing in terms of our water infrastructure and so on. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done, but I think acting more decisively in terms of corruption and actually trying to root it out at municipal level all the way up to your national government would be the best way to do it. You've raised a very interesting point about um, the fruitless and wasteful expenditure that runs into billions of rents, uh, especially in early municipalities. What we do know that is the AG, Auditor General, has every audit that she conducts or that the institution conducts lays to bear millions of rents that have just gone, that have been flushed, and, and especially in poorly, uh, in poor municipalities. I mean, if you want to fight corruption, why is it that all these parties have made a stronger, or just talking about it, pushing for the arrest of municipal managers or officials um, who were found wanting you know, by, by the AG's uh, findings in respect to um, irregular expenditure, in respect to um, you know, fruitless and wasteful expenditure? Why is it that particular culture? We Everybody talks about it, but action it's nowhere to be found. I do think that we ha- we lack prosecution in terms of like follow through. We we talk about it as you rightfully mentioned, and you would note like around I think the fifteenth of this month, the Auditor General indicated that we as a country lost one billion. Um, like and that that's like quite a lot of money if you take that. This basically puts different municipalities at the verge of bankruptcy, um, and obviously not them not being able to do it, but they. One of the things that I've noticed is that there's a lot of this, um, they don't keep documentation or documentation is lost or the correct protocol is not followed and so on. So one of the things that I would say is I would say that a lot of the people um, joining the civil service must be trained adequately. I think that um, if you train someone, it's easy for them to, like it's harder for them to say that they do didn't know. And as a result, you can put in more processes and so on, and you are able to actually um, like deal with people more decisively. Because I think that has been the thing up to now. But I also think that there's a lack of political will to do so. A lot of the times you'll find that people were just um, like people like just resigned and or people left or people um, like were fired and so on. But it all happens like kind of under the carpet where they don't try to have uh, or attract a lot of media attention to it. And I, ju- I just think that it is unacceptable 
unacceptable. I think that people need to be held to account for their wrongdoing because at the end of the day, this is taxpayer money. Um, and I do think that there is like there are skilled people, but I also think that you can upskill the people already occupying those positions. And then it's much easier for you to deal with those things and have mechanisms put in place. But I also think that this is where that relationship between um, like your public administrators and your politicians needs to be balanced because certain positions shouldn't be occupied by people um, holding political office because those are administrative positions mm-hmm. and certain jobs need to be held by administrators. A municipal manager, I don't believe, should be a political deployee. Um, I think that it is a very huge responsibility and I think that you should have someone who is equipped and skilled in terms of that. I think someone dealing with municipal finances should be someone who either has an accounting or public administration background because they know how things are supposed to work. They know about the Public Financial Management Act. They know what the rules and regulations is and what the red tape is around certain things. So I think if we allow political deployees to occupy positions that they have to occupy within the civil service and you allow people who are trained in specific things to occupy those positions, I think then you might have a reduction in terms of this overlap in terms of duties and responsibilities. Interesting observation. And indeed, I think the key word there is uh, an an attempt to, well, first, it's about political will. And secondly, it's all about insulating politicians away from administration. Administrative position has to be has to be uh, managed by competent and seasoned bureaucrat and politicians obviously have to provide oversight because they are political appointee. But the reality in South Africa is that, um, you know, we have uh, administrators who are politicians or who have been deployed by a particular political party. So the failure to, to disconnect uh, different hats um, um, is a result of, or has resulted in the, the kind of quagmire that we find ourselves in. Um, as we gravitate towards the end of the show, I want to, um, you know, I want you to reflect on education as one critical lever in which could make a difference and, and a number of political parties have made their submissions. Let's take a break and we'll be back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision making. Did you know that most statistics for commercial and social research are tested for accuracy at a 95% confidence level? As specialists in the field, we do tests between 90 and 99% confidence levels. This is not to be confused with our name. Plus 94 is a celebration of the miracle post-94 in South Africa. We can still test the accuracy of your data at 94%. It is in our name to give you the confidence you need. Plus 94 Research. The science of decision making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. Nimrod Tembele here. We are literally on the edge of our interesting conversation. I am joined by Sonia Solomon, who is a lecturer in political studies at UNISA, and giving us a global bow, if you like, on the political manifestos and and the the the, the worthiness of of some of these manifestos, as uh, if if you like. Um, before we took that break, um, I wanted to. Give us a your sense on what has been presented 
by by a number of political parties on education space. We know that education is a driver of economic growth and the kind of education system that we have and the quality of education is not is nowhere near where we're supposed to be. What sort of solutions are coming forth from you know political parties manifesto based on your assessment? Um, I think, like, I would like to start at the ground level. I think one of the more important things that was mentioned was by the DA, like, the need to improve education. I think it's something that they've spoken about a lot. But I love that the EFF mentioned that you don't start with education at a later stage, that early childhood development should be made more accessible, that early childhood development should be um made uh, like affordable and that it should be something that is compulsory for all kids because I mean from the age of two to three like that's when your education should start that's where you should start having stimulation and so on I think that the foundation phase in terms of our education system needs to be more capacitated I think that um, the introduction of your teaching assistance was something good that the, the ANC did but I don't think it should be something that's a temporary solution because if you look at our public sector, you would see how the classes are ballooned and how the teachers aren't able to deal with that. So I think if each class by any chance had a teacher and a teaching assistant and or two teachers and a teaching assistant, I think that would actually enable the educators to have more time to spend in terms of creating um, better assessments, teaching, and also having the necessary uh, capability to deal with those larger classes, especially in your public sector. I think that there was a lot of discussions about the decolonization of education, but like someone asked an interesting question, we are 30 years into uh, democracy, like until when do we decolonize our education? So I think one of the things that we should instead look at is, for example, having um, or focusing on the skills that we need. We have noted from these continental tests that have been done over the years that South Africa performs very poorly in terms of um, your sciences and the STEM subjects. So one of the things that I would say is by grade four, grade five, maybe there's where you could put a larger focus in terms of having um, more support for those particular subjects. I would say um, trying to make sure that there is better education at uh, like both foundation phase and eventually when they get to high school. And then also I would say improving the choices that students make when they get to grade 10 because we see that people sometimes opt for the easier options because they don't have the necessary support in place. And as a result, when they get to university, they can't study the things that they need to study because they don't have the necessary subjects needed. And then you get to university where, for example, there's a mismatch between the degrees or the number of graduates finishing certain degrees and what the market could absorb. So I would say maybe speaking to people in terms of practice, finding out what these skills are that they need. For example, there is a move or a greater move towards for IR, etc. So making sure that kids have access to your necessary necessary uh, infrastructure as in computers, laptops and so on while they're still in school so that they 
can become computer literate so that you can introduce coding at a much younger age. I would say making sure that you have more people doing your maths and stats and so on so that they can fill those positions because there are jobs. The problem is just that there's often a mismatch between the skills that we have and what the market actually needs. And I think if you look at the Mo Ibrahim Index, that's something that they've highlighted over a number of years, that mismatch. And I think that's something that South Africans should look at. I think it's something that um, politicians should look at. But also talk to the people on the ground, talk to your teachers, talk to your um, your university professors and lecturers and so on, because those are the people who deal with the challenges head on and actually capacitating our education system. Because while there is a lot of resources going into it, it does not necessarily always trickle into improving the quality of the education that we have. And those people do need support. So that's something that I would stress. And I am actually quite happy that it is something that all of the different political parties have been putting an emphasis on and that there's something that we can get that's positive from each and every political party. Absolutely. Unfortunately, one hand, leave it here. Thank you very much for giving us uh, in-depth analysis of the current affairs in respect to, um, um, you know, political uh, manifestos that have been presented to us, and and certainly some of the points that you have raised, particularly on the last point um, on 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 education, as obviously one of the levers that that if if properly, um, you know, if properly leveraged on, can address a number of challenges that we see, um, you know, from ECD. Everybody agrees that ECD is an important um, uh, stage. There has to be substantial and substantive funding uh, on on ECD. You've also uh, made reference to the teacher assistance, which has made a bit of a difference, even though in your view should not be a one-off, but should be a sustained intervention given the large classrooms that you're saying. And you also raised issues around um, learners being given um, wider options so that when they when they get to varsity, um, they don't um, uh, contribute to what's the mismatch that, uh, between qualifications and what the labor market requires. So there has to be more work that is done, especially by the sitters, um, in, in relation to giving the kind of work um, or, or assignments to um, youth based on what the market requires. We're going to have to leave it here. It has been absolutely beautiful. Thank you for your contribution. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much. Then we get that. Um, Sanet Solomon, who is a lecturer in political studies um, at the University of South Africa, giving us uh, her insights and observations on some of the very complex issues which has been presented via the election manifestos. Let's hope um, that we are better informed better educated and our horizons are slightly open up when it comes to the kind of parties that we're likely to vote. Not so much about wishy-washy stuff. We want practical, uh, implementable and, and, and clear guided, um, you know, uh, you know, um, the word I'm looking for policies. Well, let's live it here. It's been absolutely beautiful. Have yourself a wonderful day ahead and don't remember to be kind. It does not cost you anything. Shalom. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Did you know that where markets are concerned, it's not easy to detect the difference between objective and subjective reality or between reality and fantasy? 
the business's view of the consumer has serious bottom-line implications. At Plus94 Research, we help businesses cut through the uncertainty by gathering and processing real consumer intelligence through advanced scientific research methodologies. Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making.